We're going to come to a time now in God's Word. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word and talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. Um, I would have loved actually to just preach a very different message today because of all that's going on in our world right now. And I think next week actually we're probably going to just take a little step out of Ephesians so we can just really address uh, a little bit more of just this present world situation. Uh, I think it's fitting to just kind of step up. But for today... We will just finish out this last message today from Ephesians. Um, I just felt too important uh, to not go into today uh, for reasons which will soon become obvious. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. And we're going to read this passage today. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. We are actually going to turn the page in Ephesians months into this series already. So we're making our way. But once you've found that, Ephesians chapter 2, stand together with me and we'll read this passage. Paul says this, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time, that is formerly, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing it in his flesh, the law and its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man. Out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. This is God's word. You may be seated. Allow me to pray for us once more and just commit this time in the word to God and then we'll dig in here. Spirit of God, we have felt your presence already so powerfully this morning. We just ask that that would continue now as we come to your word. We submit ourselves underneath it. We humble ourselves beneath it and we ask that you would teach us, that you would train us, that you would... Continue to transform and renew our minds by it. Uh, May we be those who, again, sit under the authority of this word and not over top of it as those who instruct it. You tell us in this word that when you send out your word, it accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. I think if you were to ask the average person today, just in regular conversation, what are some of the defining issues and problems of our world right now, you'd get a whole list of things. I mean, people would include things like the environment. There's so much going on with that right now. Uh, So much of like uh, gender equality. There's lots happening in this. All kinds of different major issues that are affecting our world. And of course now, uh, uh, 
a pandemic virus which is affecting the whole world. People would say that's, that's, a, that's, a world, that's a problem, an issue in our world that is just defining much of who we are as a global community. But one of the issues that I think would undoubtedly come on that list of things defining issues in our world today, you'd hear a lot of people say, is the issue of race. Racial divides, racial inequality, racism, which, let's just be honest with each other this morning, that's an issue that if we could just picture what racism looks like visually, at least in my mind, what I see is a stack of dynamite with multiple fuses coming out from every side, lots of opportunities to blow it up, which is the reason, I think, for so many people, if and when we talk about that issue at all, we keep a big, big different distance away from it, as far away from it as possible, and for which we got very nervous and very uncomfortable when people bring it up and invite us to come in and look at it. We're kind of just like, no, it's kind of like somebody coughing a lot on the bus right now. We're just like, no. I mean, like, have you ever seen that uh, 2009 film, Hurt Locker, which is about the U.S. Army Explosive Ordnance Disposal Team in the Iraq War? We kind of get the same feeling with this issue when people talk about that as we had watching that movie. We're pretty sure that that person's going to get blown up and everybody within a 50-foot radius is in danger too. We just, we don't like to enter into this and talk about this, which for a lot of people is the reason we don't even bring this issue up and or we tend to accidentally on purpose shut it down as soon as someone does bring it up. And yet, as I heard someone say recently, to avoid conversations about race because they make us uncomfortable is actually the epitome of privilege because for many people, they don't get the choice of whether or not they want to deal with it or not. And I think that's true. But one of the really awesome and, yeah, at times uh, occasionally intimidating and uncomfortable things about preaching through a book of the Bible is that it forces us to look at stuff which we might not just on our own go and bring up. And, and as we continue in this teaching series and look through now this passage today, it's going to force all of us to look at it whether we're ready to look at it or not. It's just, it's going to bring us right there, and, and I'm thinking that's a good thing. I, I don't see that as a bad thing at all, or something that we should be fearful of, not simply because this is an issue that many in our congregation deal with on a regular basis, being as ethnically diverse as we are, regularly deal with this issue, which means for that reason alone, it's something that we should look at and talk about and, and learn from each other's experience but also because what the Bible has to say about the issue of, of race and racial inequality is so profound and is so profoundly transforming. In fact, I would go so far as to say that what Paul presents here in our passage today is the only hope that actually exists to see a problem like racism eradicated from our world. It's the only hope is here. And we'll dig into a lot more of why that is as we talk this morning. But very simply stated, the reason only the gospel can deal with something like racism is because racism is not a political issue. It's not an education issue. It's first and foremost a heart issue. It's a heart issue, which is why in spite of all the strides and progress that has been made up until now with something like racism, we're still dealing with it in 2020. I heard just recently a school in Vancouver having to expel students just this past week because of racist content on their social media. It's here right now. This is not something years away, gone in our past. And the reason 
that, that it's still here today is because laws, legislation, educational programs don't actually change the heart. Only the gospel has the power to do that. So in order to learn what this profound, transforming power is, and more importantly, that as a church we might apply it into our lives and the way we live, I want to look at this passage today in just two ways. Really, Paul's going to show us two gospel-empowered tools to affect true heart change as it relates to this issue of racism. And I want to show you then the transforming power of remembrance and then the transforming power of a new humanity. The transforming power of remembrance and of a new humanity. But very quickly, just before we dive into this as, as a way of prefacing what I'm about to say, first of all, this subject is massive and multifaceted. Uh, uh, so many different parts to it. There's no way I'd ever be able to cover every aspect, every question that might come up, nor am I trying to in a single message. Uh, my hope here, and what I want to focus on here in particular, is the way the gospel profoundly affects and speaks to this issue. But secondly, as I've said in the past when dealing with sensitive subjects like this, my commitment to you is to do everything possible to, to not speak in a way that's intentionally hurtful or offensive to anyone. I, I've worked really hard this week to kind of think about my words and, and think about the fact that I don't want to say anything that's going to intentionally hurt anyone. But what I know also is that I'm talking about an issue like race in particular from a position and a perspective of privilege. And I haven't had to walk in your story. A story that for many of you includes a lot of hurt and damage because of this issue. And so my commitment is just to do all I can to not offend. What I'd ask from you this morning is that if I do say something, if I step on toes, if I am so clueless in what I say, would you be willing to come to me? Uh, talk to me after the service, email me, whatever this week. Uh, allow me the opportunity to respond and to repent and, and to hear and learn more from your story. That, that would be a real gift to me if you'd do that. So, having said all that, if you have closed your Bibles, would you open them again to this passage? Go back to verse 11 in chapter 2. Follow along with me as Paul now begins to unpack some of the gospel implications of this new life in Christ that he just described in verses 1 through 10. So let's look first of all at the transforming power of remembrance. A transforming power of remembrance. And I want to look at this first, not simply because this is where Paul begins, but because what he talks about here in these first three verses actually help connect everything he said about our reconciliation with God in the previous ten verses with what he's going to go on to say about our reconciliation with one another in the next six verses. So you see in verse 11, look here, Paul writes, Therefore, meaning you know, on the basis of everything I just said, remember. Therefore, remember. Now, memory is this really powerful thing, actually. It informs our present identity, but it also has the profound influence on who we become. So, for instance, remembering my wedding day, remembering the day that my daughters were born, it informs my present identity as a husband and a father. Just remembering that those things happen. Oh, yeah, I'm a husband, I'm a dad. But think about it, remembering the grace of God in giving me those gifts of a wife and a family that I am so regularly, I'm reminded I'm woefully undeserving of those gifts, also has an effect on who it is I'm going to become in the future. 
whether or not I become somebody who's a grateful person, who lives with a, a heart of gratitude, or whether I become a proud and entitled person. Remembering what a gift those things are to me is the thing that informs who I also become. And there's all kinds of applications for this gospel tool of remembrance that's used repeatedly throughout the Bible. You see it in the Old Testament. Constantly they're being told to remember about their freedom from slavery in Egypt. Remember you were slaves and I rescued you out of that. As well as in the New Testament. In the way, for example, Jesus reimagines the Passover supper to say, Do this, take and eat this as often as you do in remembrance of me. All about these things, remember, remember, such a powerful tool the Bible uses. But in this case in particular, Paul is applying this gospel tool of remembrance to the issue of race. And I think it's clear that that's what he's doing here because the rest of verse 11, he lays out these two predominant warring racial groups in Paul's day, namely the people of Israel, those who are called the circumcision, and the Gentiles, those called the uncircumcised. So Gentiles, really just kind of an umbrella term that means all non-Jewish races. But I don't want to get ahead of myself, but, but look at what Paul says there in verse 11 when he says, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision. Just that language. Doesn't that sound weird to say to somebody formerly who you were and then describe their ethnicity? I mean, just imagine somebody saying to you today, remember that formerly you who were Canadian by birth, formerly you who were Chinese or Russian or African by birth, it would stand out. You'd be like, wait, what do you mean? I, I am still, aren't I? But what Paul is doing, he's, he's using this language intentionally in order to set up what he's about to say in the next section of verses. But here, as it relates to Jews and Gentiles, Paul uses these two terms, the circumcised and the uncircumcision, or sorry, the uncircumcised and the circumcision, which sound really just like nothing more than surgical terms to us. But in Paul's day, they had deep significance, and the way he's using them here, they were equivalent to racial slurs, actually. These were the the names they called each other. So just very quick review, if you've forgotten. Uh, In in the days back in Genesis, Abraham is called uh, out of the Ur, the Chaldeans, to to start this whole new race of people, the people of God, the Jews. And and him and Sarah are going to create this nation as numerous as the stars in the sky. And one of the, the, the signs that this nation as a whole is to follow, is to obey, is circumcision. That's how they are to be known. That's how they are to be characterized as these people who have marked themselves in this way. But at some point in their history, rather than remaining a sign of their obedience and their consecration, circumcision became a source of nationalistic pride for the people of Israel and the means by which they then looked down on other people and mocked other people as uncircumcised dogs. You hear this all through the Bible, that we free uncircumcised Philistine, like it's the way they, they kind of curse each other. But then, you know, just to answer back, Gentiles do the exact same thing. Their response is to call the, the people of Israel, oh yeah, you circumcised ones, you mutilated ones. That's, that's how they would use the terminology. So they're just calling back and forth to each other this way. But one of the things we know historically is that so much more than name-calling These two racial groups utterly despised one another. 
And by the time you get to the New Testament, their entire social structures are set up in a way as to have as little direct contact as possible. So this is not social distancing. This is racial distancing. That's what's going on here. And yet, without trying to kind of keep the fight going, if you look at verse 12, Paul does say there were absolutely some advantages to being a Jew as it related to connection with God because it was through all the prophets, through the patriarchs, and and the covenants that were formed through those people that the hope of the coming Messiah, this idea of of a God who who wanted to be in relationship with us, they were expressed through those things. So that's why Paul is saying here that these Gentile readers were without hope and without God is because as as people outside of God's covenants, they didn't know that these things were coming. They didn't know to hope for a Messiah. They didn't know to hope that they could be reconciled to God. But in the very same way that Paul transitioned from our BC before Christ existence to our in Christ, alive in Christ existence back in verse 4 with the word but... If you look at verse 13, Paul uses the exact same word to describe the entirely new reality these Gentile readers have now experienced in Christ. Look there at verse 13. He says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. point Paul is making here specifically and calling his readers then and I believe us today to remember the reason he's calling us to remember who we were formerly before we were made alive by Christ is to show us this I believe that there has to be a direct correlation between the vertical reconciliation that God has brought about between us and himself with Jesus and the horizontal reconciliation that there is now to be between roaring racial groups This one has to affect this one. That again, your memory of who you were before Christ is not only to inform your present identity as a child of God, it must also profoundly affect who you are becoming as you walk in those good works that God prepared in advance for you to do, which are absolutely going to include how it is you treat every other person made in the image of God. Because remember, This is God's grand vision that he's presenting here in Ephesians and really throughout the entire Bible. That's what we read back in chapter 1, verse 10. God's will to unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. That's what he's trying to bring about. That's what he's called us into. There's a, a direct example, for instance, of this in the Old Testament, back in Leviticus 19, where God tells his newly redeemed people this, when an alien lives with you, that's not a space alien, this is a a foreign person who's moved in, a refugee, when an alien lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Why? For you were slaves in Egypt. You know what it's like. Remember who you formerly were, it's going to inform how you treat these people presently. A New Testament example of this we see just in the previous book, Galatians chapter 2, where there's like, I don't know, a church potluck or something after the service that day, and Peter, he is separating himself. He won't eat with the Gentile Christians because some of the bigwigs from the church in Jerusalem have come, and he separates himself from the Gentile Christians and won't eat with them. And Paul says he called out Peter to his face in front of everyone. Listen, though, not because, Peter, you're breaking the no racism law, but because, look what he says, I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So think about that. 
separating yourself, uh, uh, racial pride or, or inequality is, in a sense, it's not acting it in line with the gospel. Racism, he's saying, is not in, in line with the gospel. In essence, in both cases, saying, remember who you were formerly. Remember the grace that saved you, but also remember the implications of that grace that you freely received. You are now to be ministers of reconciliation. That's who you've been called to be now that you've been reconciled, to reconcile all things as well. And I know, I know, because I've heard it so often, when you talk about people with this today, this issue, people will often respond. A pushback to this is often, right, right, racism. Yeah, I know, that, that used to be a really big issue in our world. Uh, that used to be something that we really dealt with a lot. <sighs> Too much to say about that. But, just, but don't you see, even from what we've been looking at here, yes, yes, racism is really big, obvious things, like the Holocaust and Rwandan genocide, uh, uh, Jim Crow laws and burning crosses, Japanese internment camps and residential schools. Yeah, all those things are really big examples of racism. But you see from our passage here, racism, racial inequality is also how we treat the refugee, how we treat the immigrant in our country. And it's even where you choose to sit to eat lunch. In the end, it's every time who you are by birth becomes the place or the platform from which you look down on or separate yourself from another who's from someplace else. And if you look here, Paul's not playing favorites. He's not saying, oh, you Gentiles, you know, you're separating. He's calling out both sides, Jews and Gentiles, of this behavior both in its obvious forms and its deceptively subtle forms. In all of those forms, he's saying to either one, Jew or Gentile, if you've been made alive in Christ, you cannot live this way any longer. You cannot walk in this sinful way any longer. And the first gospel tool he gives us to fight against this hard issue, which is just as prevalent today as it was in his, is memory. Remember who you were formerly, and if you've been made alive by that gospel of grace... You must now walk in line with the truth of it. Okay, that's the transforming power of memory. The other tool that Paul gives us here that I want to look at with you from our passage is the transforming power of a new humanity. The transforming power of a new humanity. And this tool really leaves, I think it leaves nothing more to be discussed as it relates to this issue of racism from the church's point of view. I know, and, and my heart is so grieved to think about the tremendous hurt and confusion that's being caused throughout the generations where people have used God's word really selectively in order to justify their racist, racist belief and practice. We've seen this again and again, and it's such a, a misuse of God's word to say that that supports this kind of behavior. But rightly understood, I think what Paul teaches here alone leaves zero room for any of that. Now, Paul just ended verse 13, talking about how his Gentile readers had been brought near through the blood of Christ. You've been brought near through the blood of Christ. Let's just read through these next verses that follow very quickly and then unpack the transforming truth related to that that we see in these verses. Look there at verse 14 now. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh 
the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. There he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Now, the very first thing we need to look at is this dividing wall of hostility that he talks about there. Dividing wall of hostility in verse 14. There's a lot of historical evidence to suggest that what Paul was referring to there was a literal wall built around the temple in Jerusalem that, that excluded the court of the Gentiles from the court of the Jews inside, which, which only Jewish people could enter into to worship. Gentiles, if they believed in this God of Israel at all, could come to the temple, but they had to stay outside here in this court of the Gentiles. They couldn't go into the inner courts, and, and archaeologists have discovered some of the signage uh, on the entrances into those inner courts that basically said, if you're not a Gentile and you go past this point, you're taking your life into your own hands. So it's very, very clear. You're not welcome in here. And yet, Paul has to at least be referring to something more than just a literal wall because although he states, hey, Jesus, he destroyed this dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles, at the time he's writing this historically, that literal wall still existed. It was still there, still excluding Gentiles. So he must be referring to at least something more. And I believe what he is truly referring to was that in his death, Jesus destroyed the racial divide between Jews and Gentiles. He destroyed the thing that was keeping them separated for, from one another. So as John Stott puts it, although materially the literal wall remained, spiritually it had already been destroyed 30 years or so ago when Jesus died on the cross. And then he quotes uh, Armitage Robinson, who stated it this way, it still stood, this literal wall still stood, but it was already antiquated, obsolete and out of date so far as its spiritual meaning went. The sign still stood, but the thing it signified was broken down. But now look at what Paul goes on to say in the second half of verse 15 and verse 16. Look at it again. He says, as to why he did this, he says his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. Now, do you see what that means? Like, do you really see what he's saying there? I got to admit, I, I really wrestled hard to kind of grapple, get my mind around what is actually being said here. So I just want to slow down for a second just because I really want to make sure you get it as well. Because it is as mind-blowing as it is devastating to the presence of racism in the life of a Christian. Because what Paul is describing here is ultimately the creation of an entirely new race, spiritually speaking. An entirely new humanity, what he calls one new man. A loyalty that it transcends loyalty to those two warring races that they used to have. Which is why I wanted to stop and point out what he said back in 11, verse 11, about those Gentile readers, who they were formerly by birth. Because where we were born, our nationality, is the thing that forms the foundation so often of which racism is built, right? Uh, our country, our culture, the color of our skin, how we do things, that becomes the standard of what's right 
and then everything else that's not like us, that becomes the, the not normal thing that we look down on. Oh, that's not like us. That's wrong. We're allowed to look down and, and criticize that. But look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 17 again. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and to those who were near. Meaning both Gentiles and the Jews had remained separated from God in some sense. Neither one of them, although they had, the Jews had more advantages, they were still separated from God. They still didn't have access to him to have this one spirit. But then the result of the reconciling work of Jesus, we see in verse 18, he says, for through him we have access, sorry, verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. Did you hear that? What he doesn't say is, you Gentiles have now been brought into the, the Israel people. You've been brought into Israelite race. No, he, he speaks of an entirely new citizenship that's being created called God's people. You are now fellow citizens of God's people. And then as you read through uh, the history of the early church in a book like Acts, you just see again and again the church just struggling to understand how this new reality works out. They don't really know how we're supposed to do this. We were supposed to exclude these people. Now they're here and we're kind of like, uh, nobody really knew what to do. And it was just a struggle as they learned how to know and understand what this new reality that was created in Christ meant and how to live it out, which I think we could all acknowledge is something we're still to some degree learning how to do. But are you beginning to see how this speaks directly to the issue of racism and deals a, a blow to the sinful heart motivation behind it? Because, first of all, for the one who is in Christ, you no longer have any ground to stand on, first of all, looking down on someone of a different race because it was by grace alone that you were brought into this new race of people, this new country. You didn't earn your way in there. You, you, you were brought in by grace. So how do you look down on anyone else who's there? Secondly... How can you have any ground to take nationalistic pride in your biological country that who you were by birth? Because in Christ, that's not where you're from anymore. Think about that. Your biological country of birth, that's not where you're from anymore, spiritually speaking. I want to be careful in what I say here because there's been times, uh, even today, where people have taken that truth and over-realized it to try to suggest that the gospel erases ethnicity. That, uh, you know what, we, there's no more any races or colors. We just need to be colorblind because in Christ we're all one. That's not at all what Paul's presenting here. And the reason we know that is because of what we just read and sang about this morning. That picture of heaven from Revelation 5 is a place where every tribe, every nation, every tongue and language is all standing before the Lamb who has redeemed them, praising Him. That vision isn't possible if the gospel erases ethnicity. It needs to be every race and tribe. It doesn't, it doesn't erase your ethnicity to be in Christ, but it transforms your allegiance. It transforms your loyalty now. Now, what Paul is saying here is that for all who are in Christ, all the racial pride, discrimination that formerly kept us separate, kept us hostile and warring with one another, has been destroyed in Jesus' death because now we all share the same citizenship as God's people making any hint of anything like racism in the church unthinkable. Which means, it doesn't matter what my birth certificate says. It doesn't matter what my 23andMe 
report says about who I am, white European, Canadian born, those are only a description, Paul says here, of who I was formerly by birth. Now in Christ, who I am is a citizen of God's people. Now who I am in Christ is, is, a, is a new creation in the family of God first, who also happens to be white, European, and Canadian-born. That's, that's the, the new story that the gospel has written over my life and he's written over your life as well. If you today are here and are in Christ, it's a story that's being written over all of us, that no matter who you are, who you are where you were born, the color of your skin, it doesn't matter if you are in Christ. You are my, you're my family. You're my family. That's what's been created in Jesus. And you see this everywhere in Scripture. You see it all over the place. Abraham, who was called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, modern-day Iraq, to begin a whole new race of people now, a creation of a whole new nation, uh, as numerous as the stars in the sky. You see it uh, when Ruth leaves her Moabite tribe in order to say to Naomi, your people will now be my people. Your God will be my God. We see it in a verse that we quote all the time, which I I think after studying a passage like this, you're never going to see the same way again. 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Who, Who you formerly were by birth has passed away. And the new has come. Which means it's exactly like we looked at last week with the story of Jean Valjean, Victor Hugo's story. It really is true. Jean Valjean is nothing now. Another story must begin. It's a new story that's begun for all of us who are in Christ. There was a story my parents would sometimes refer to growing up about a missionary couple who traveled to West Papua, Indonesia, back in the 60s. Their name were Don and Carol Richardson. And although they tried to share the gospel with the Sawi people there in this nation, what they found was that again and again the people misunderstood the message. They saw Judas as the hero of the story because uh, treachery, uh, a betrayal were admirable qualities in this tribe. And so they were like, well, I think Judas is the one who won because he tricked everybody. He was the one who got, and Jesus died, so he's, he's the one who got it right. And so they were just at a loss of what to do. How do we communicate the gospel message to these people? Until one day, different villages of this tribe began to fight and war with each other because different tribes wanted more access and time with the Richardson family. And so they finally had to say, guys, if you can't stop fighting with each other, we're going to leave. And in response to that, a man from one village brought his baby son to the other village and left him there. And they were like, uh, what, what's going on? What, why did he do that? And what they were told was that in the Sawi tradition, when one village wanted to make peace, they presented one of their children to another village, and as long as that peace child lived, there would be peace between the enemies. And suddenly, the Richardsons had their gospel metaphor in order to communicate the truth of the gospel to this tribe that that they could share with them of a heavenly father who gave his son to those who were his enemies to restore peace and bring reconciliation to the world whether it's warring villages those neighbors down the street or those people across the hall or even the hostility 
Paul describes here in our passage today between Jews and Gentiles. What's common among all of those situations is that their one hope for peace remains the gospel of Jesus. I really meant what I said when we began this morning, that I believe that the only hope that actually exists to truly and finally see racism eradicated from our world is the gospel. And the reason I say that is not simply because 2,000 years later, despite all the advances that have been made in this issue, we're still at war, but because of the profound difference offered in the gospel message to really cut this problem off at the root and dig it out. Because every man-made solution to the problem of racism almost always is about addressing behaviors or, 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 or thought patterns associated with racism. And consequently, the responses are just often programmatic. And so what I mean by that is we see racism using its most obvious, easy-to-point-at forms, and we say, okay, if we want to bring about reconciliation between those people or those villages or those nations, what we need to do is blank. And what we fill in that blank with is things like educational programs, uh, stronger penalties, stricter policies, things like that. But the difference with the gospel message is that when God sent his peace child to earth 2,000 years ago to redeem us by his blood, he didn't come with better advice. He didn't come with heavenly instructions as to what to do so we can have peace with God and one another. Look again at verse 14. It says, he himself is our peace. Get your mind around that. Not the way to peace. Not follow these teachings and you'll have... He himself is our peace because in him that dividing wall is broken down. He creates the peace for us. And Paul tells us because Jesus made that peace through his death, he destroyed the dividing wall of hostility both between us and God as well as between one another. He's destroyed it now for all who are in Christ. Laws, education, societal pressure, they have the power to restrain the heart, but they don't have the power to really transform it and, and change it. And yet when someone encounters the truth of the gospel and is saved by grace through faith, it becomes an inside-out change that transforms every part of us, both our behavior as well as the motivations behind that behavior that begin at the heart level. How? Well, because if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. The, the new has come, which means those former attitudes and practices in which we freely used to walk have been transformed at the heart level, not just simply the behavior on the surface. The whole orientation of our heart has been transformed and is being transformed. And in light of all that, as we close this morning, I think it's worth just pausing here together to take a moment, or maybe a lot of moments, to really consider your own life right now and where the roots of who you formerly were by birth need to be dug out and cut away, particularly as it relates to this issue. For those of us who are now citizens of God's family, those who are a new creation and ministers of his reconciliation, where do the roots of who I was formerly by birth, still caused me to act in those old ways, still caused me to look down on the other, to treat the other in a different way than I treat the same one. I think as God's people, as God's church, we have to be at the forefront of this. We have to be those who, who look at this and can really face up to it and, and acknowledge where it exists and then root it out. Because 
It is by grace that we've been saved. It's by grace we've been adopted, redeemed into a whole new family by faith. And this is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Either boast either in our reconciled relationship with God or boast anymore in who you formerly were by birth. Amen.